Hey everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks Thanks for for joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Welcome back, listeners, and happy Wednesday. Hey, y'all. So if you couldn't already tell from the name of the episode, we're covering another Louisiana case today. Spoiler alert. Right. And of our 27 episodes, this is, I think, our eighth Louisiana case. Um, You know, I've promised before that we're going to expand our horizons and cover more cases across the U.S. and eventually the world, which we have ventured outside the U.S. a couple times. But this case was suggested to us by a listener. And I was intrigued when I started researching, so I decided that I was going to cover it, even though it was Louisiana. Right. So today we're going to discuss the 2002 murders of three women in Evangeline Parish, Louisiana. And Evangeline Parish is a parish about 100 miles and a little under two hours northwest of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay. Where we sit right now in Baton Rouge. Okay. (laughs) Um, And Evangeline Parish had a population of about 34,000 people, according to the 2010 census. So it's a pretty decent-sized parish. Right. So late on the night of May 8th, 2002, which was actually my 12th birthday, Mm -hmm. so that was the first thing that kind of intrigued me about this, but... Brandy Vickers, Michelle Oakwin, and Jennifer Leger were murdered near Oakdale, Louisiana. So all three women were shot with a shotgun. Oh my God. And it became evident to police relatively quickly that the culprit was the estranged husband of Brandy Vickers, named Kenneth Vickers Jr. Uh oh. But as the case unfolded, police realized that Kenneth may have planned these murders with a friend of his named David Leger. And it wasn't hard to make the connection between David and the other the two victims. Names. Michelle Oakwin and David were previously romantically involved and shared a young child. Okay. And Jennifer Leger was David's ex-wife. Whoa. And Jennifer and David also shared a young child. So Michelle mm-hmm. and David were married or just had a child? They were in a relationship and lived together and had a child. At the time of the murders? No, previously. Okay. They had previously been romantically involved and their relationship produced a child. So. And then after the, Michelle, David Jennifer. was married to Jennifer. So, okay. And they also have a child. So all three women were former partners of the two men. Yes. Not collect like yeah. Like Brandy was married to Kenneth Vickers mm-hmm. and then the other two women were previously either married or romantically involved with David Leger. So from what I could gather, Brandy and Michelle were found at Brandy's residence and I'll get more into the little bit of like where she lived later. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer was found at her own residence. And I'm not exactly sure how far apart these homes are though. Like I, I couldn't find that. Um I want to ask questions, but I know you're going to answer them, so I'm just going to shut up. Um, I'm sure, I mean, I I think they lived relatively close. And I'll get into, like, the connection between the women themselves, too. Because they all knew each other, obviously. How far apart were these murders? Same day? Oh, all in the same night. May 8th. So it was a spree? 2002, yeah. So today's going to be a little bit different than our normal episodes because, obviously, I've already told you. The people involved. (laughs) Right, I've already told you the people involved in the murder, um, but we're going to work backwards. Um, Most of the information for today's episode came from court documents I was able to find online. 
So I thought it would make a little bit more sense to kind of work backwards. Mm -hmm. um, and most, like I said, most of the information I got was from court documents from when David Leger eventually went to trial. So just throwing that out there. So when I say, you know, according to this person's testimony, it was at David Leger's trial. Okay. So they were had separate trials and or plea? Yes. Okay. So I want to back up and give you a little bit of background on Kenneth Vickers Jr. and David Leger. And according to evidence presented at Leger's eventual trial, Kenneth Vickers Jr. and David Lee Leger were lifelong friends. Mm -hmm. So they knew each other really, really well. And first, um, some background on Kenneth Vickers Jr. Kenneth and his wife Brandy Vickers separated sometime around April 2002, which was about a month before the murders. Oh, so it was fresh, fresh. They were separated. Yikes. And upon their separation, Brandy stayed in the home that she and Kenneth shared, like the mar she stayed in the marital home, uh -huh. uh, which was a mobile home located behind Kenneth's father's home Ugh. in Cypress Creek in Evangeline Parish. That's terrible. So, I mean, I you know, get it, they like, separated. single mom, like, she takes what she can get, but that. Yeah, and especially, I guess, for Kenneth, like, you know, his ex-wife exactly. is in the house on his dad's property. Right. But, I mean, you're not going to, the you know, the, Kenneth's dad isn't going to kick her and her kids out, yeah, you know, just because yeah. it's his property. I mean, she, she's doing the best she could, but it's right. awkward. Right. So after the separation, Brandy filed a restraining order against Kenneth, which prevented him from going near Brandy and their three children. So he wasn't allowed to see his kids. It was a temporary thing. I think so, yeah. Well, I think most restraining orders are for a certain amount of time. 30 days or whatever. Yeah, 30 years. Emergency. I think it was an emergency type yeah. thing. And I know those are temporary, and you have to go back and refile. Right. Brandy Vickers and her friend, Michelle Oakwin, who was another victim, mm -hmm. testified against Kenneth at the restraining order hearing, which was, like I said, shortly before their murders. According to Kenneth's testimony at Leger's trial, um, he testified that on the day of the hearing for the domestic case, he didn't see Jennifer Leger, Leger there, David's ex-wife. He didn't see her in the courtroom. But Sergeant Frank Gotro with the Evangeline Parish Sheriff's Office and also David Leger's, Leger's uncle, oh, mm -mm. He, um, he testified at David's trial that he saw Jennifer Leger downstairs with Michelle and Brandy. So... Kenneth testified that he didn't see Jennifer in the courtroom, but the sergeant, Gotro from the sheriff's office, said that he saw Jennifer downstairs with Brandy and Michelle. So, so, like, they were all there. Yeah, so, like, you day. talked about, like, they knew each other, but, I mean, if Kenneth and David were lifelong friends and then right. they were the, the wives of, you know, the guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're yeah. nine times out of ten, you're going to be friends with your husband's right. or your significant other's friends right or the wives friends of, yeah yeah the friends significant others that was way confusing the real housewives but of epso i mean eps ep evangelion parish <laughs> um and i even oh wait, blah, blah, blah. so in all my research it seemed to me that all three of the victims brandy michelle and jennifer were really close friends mm -hmm. and like we you know we just talked about that and i even read that michelle was living with brandy at the time of their murders 
which is their bodies were both found. Brandy and Michelle were both found at Brandy's, Brandy's house. Home. And Michelle was the first ex of David. Yes. Chronologically. Yes, I think so. Okay. If I remember correctly. Um, I may have to correct myself later. I've had to do that before. Mm-hmm. But So, um, Kenneth testified at David's trial that he was depressed and suicidal, and he often confided in David about his problems. And according to most, Kenneth was having, like, a tough time coping with the separation from his wife and not being able to see his children, which is likely what caused him to have suicidal thoughts. Right. Which Depression. Right. So next, I want to get into David Leger's background a little bit. And, and as I stated at the beginning of the episode, David Lee Leger had a personal connection with two of the three victims. Um, so I think it was he was included by police pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think anybody would think that was a coincidence. No. But, so he had a connection to both Michelle Oakman and Jennifer Leger. First, Leger lived with Michelle Oakman, and they had a son together. So Michelle was the first mm-hmm. ex. Right. And Leger testified that there were no issues between himself and Michelle regarding child support that he paid to her. So beginning in, and this is all in court documents. So beginning in August of 92, David Leger was ordered to pay Michelle $229 a month as child support for his son. Uh-huh. And according to the testimony of a child support enforcement officer at Leger's trial, by August of 1993, so a year later, Leger was behind on his child support payments by $415, and he was placed on probation after he was found in contempt of court. So, and then the following month, in September of 93, Leger was ordered to begin making monthly payments on the amount of child support that he was behind on, like on his in arrears. In addition to, yeah. Right. Um, however, Leger's child support file was closed in December of 2000 because he moved back in with Michelle. So from 93 to 2000? Yeah, okay. they moved back in together. Um, but even after Leger and Michelle split again, Michelle didn't make another request to reopen the file with DCFS. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, DCFS is Department of Children and Family Services. In, in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Louisiana. And that's the agency responsible for child support enforcement here. So, Among other things. Right. So according to Michelle's mother, her daughter and Leger last lived together for about 18 months prior to Michelle's death. So when Leger and Michelle split up, their child, their son, stayed with Michelle. Uh-huh. About five or six weeks before Michelle's death, she moved in with Brandy Vickers, mm-hmm. who, you know, Kenneth Vickers Jr.'s estranged wife. And um, Michelle's mother also testified that she had no personal knowledge of any violent incidents between David and her daughter. Um, so following Leger's breakup with Michelle, he married Jennifer Leger. Which I'm assuming this was after they broke up in like '92, because you know they, yeah, they I guess they broke up in '92 because that's when she originally put him on right. child support or brought him to court for child so support, in, and then they moved back in together in, in 2000. So, so in I'm assuming in that period, yeah, he he married Jennifer, and their marriage produced one child, a little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, Leger and Jennifer's marriage didn't last, but. Even after the separation, Leger still had visitation with his daughter every other weekend. And Jennifer's father, just like Michelle's mother, testified that he'd never observed any physical violence between Leger and Jennifer during their marriage. Um, 
and which I think David's defense was trying to establish that he was never Not violent. A violent person. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jennifer's dad continued that their separation involved quote a constant struggle between the two end quote, but never anything violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to this, Jennifer's dad testified that his daughter also got along well with Kenneth Vickers Jr. So, like, they all, it was this circle, I guess. Like, they all knew each other. Yeah, that's so crazy. They were so close. Right. Uh, the intake officer for Evangeline Parish Support Enforcement, so, like, child, child support, mm-hmm. testified that Leger was ordered to pay Jennifer $400 a month in child support for his daughter as part of their divorce. So, in addition to the $400 a month, Leger was also ordered to pay an additional $150 per month because he was behind in child support by $4,100. To Jennifer? Yes. Because the other stuff doesn't matter anymore, Michelle. Right, because at this, well, I'm not sure exactly when this was, like, time-wise. Yeah, well, I mean, he wouldn't pay that to Jennifer. He had paid it to somebody else. So, from my time auditing at DCFS, and I think I've said this in mm-hmm. multiple episodes that... I'm an auditor for the state, and DCFS was one of my first audits. So I've got kind of firsthand knowledge of a little bit of the workings of DCFS, and child support was actually one of my programs mm-hmm. that I audited. So I learned that when someone is behind in child support payments, the total amount is referred to as arrearage or that you're in arrears in this right. amount. So according to Jennifer's records, Leger was behind on his child support payments in the amount of $6,075 as of March 4th, 2002. So if you do the math... When, Lege- did, when did when was he ordered to pay, to start paying? Um, I don't have that exact date, but if you do the math, Leger was a little over a year behind on his child support payments for his daughter, so like around 15 months. If you take the $6,000 yeah. divided by the 400 that he was ordered to pay, that's about 15 months. So I'm assuming that's probably around the time they split up. Mm-hmm. So, the so he basically never paid a dime. I don't want to say all that because I don't, I don't know. But you can assume. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so the intake officer also testified that Jennifer executed an affidavit which reflected the amount Leger was behind in child support, and she signed a statement that she was willing to accept $400 monthly payments in addition to the $150 a month for the back due support. Mm-hmm. And shortly before her death, Jennifer requested the state to assume collection of both monthly payments from Leger. Like the like normal, a, garni- a garnishment. Yeah. Or I guess, well, when you file through, and I know this from auditing them, but whenever you file through DCFS to get them to collect it, um, like I'm pretty sure DCFS like collects it or garnish. They might garnish. It didn't necessarily say garnish, but they, uh, they they take over trying to collect it. Like you don't. But have that's to not initial. The initial is you're ordered to pay this amount, and it's your responsibility to get it. Right now, when he when does you start having problems, when he's in when the arrears and stuff, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of times that's when people get DCFS involved because DCFS will be the ones contacting them, like, hey, your employer, you, yeah, or contacting the you, person. You, but then once you don't... Yeah, they can start garnishing you. Yes. Or a lot of people don't know this, but in Louisiana, and I'm sure it's like this in most states, but in Louisiana, say you are behind in child support and you file a tax return, 
Yeah. And you get an actual return. You don't get it. You don't get it. Or you will get what's left over after they take your money that you owe in arrears. Yeah, but when you have um, cousins who have like eight, nine kids True. and owe close to $100,000 and he doesn't work. True. Sorry, that was a little tangent. Um, and Leger actually met with the intake officer on March 21st, 2002, so a little over a month and a half before all this, the murders happened. Um Leger told the officer that he agreed to the state assuming collection of the $400 monthly payment, but he didn't agree with the amount, to like the $150 for back due support. And he explained to the officer that he and Jennifer had come to an agreement related to the back due support, but when the officer spoke to Jennifer on May 8, 2002, which was the day of her death, Jennifer told the officer no proceed as we originally had planned the $400 for my normal child support and then the 150 until he the, makes it up right according to the intake officer Leger was in arrears through the month of April 2002 in the amount of $6,875 so an additional $800 right. from the other amount right so at his trial Leger testified that he was aware he was behind on child support quote a little bit end quote but he said that he was not in arrears over six thousand dollars but numbers don't lie i know and she it was like a sworn affidavit yeah and according to leger he agreed that he would pay jennifer a hundred dollars a month on the arrearage but he needed a break because he was also paying 250 dollars a month for his son's child support for michelle Mm -hmm. but she never but i guess he was just he might have just been paying it to her directly because yeah like remember i said she they, never she went never through DCFS again right so he must have just been paying to her so i guess um, but jennifer actually had a court date scheduled for may 9th 2002 oh, the wow. day after she was murdered and the hearing was passed due to jennifer's death which mean passed just means that it's it didn't happen right and there was testimony presented at trial that seemed to suggest Jennifer Leger may have been afraid of David. Mm-hmm. So according to testimony, after Jennifer and David separated, David still had a key to the house so that he could assist in administering IV medication to their daughter. Okay. I, I don't know the validity know the, of that. Yeah, or I don't know what her medical condition was. Uh-huh. But and like, this is all testimony, so I'm just this was in the court documents. I'm just relaying... If it's a lie, it was perjury. (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, an eyewitness testimony is not always 100%, you know, reliable. But like you just said, if you're lying, it's it's perjury. And they find out you're lying, you're going to jail. So hopefully these people were telling the truth. But um, like I said, I'm not saying anything that wasn't in the court docs. So there were apparently times when Jennifer would come home to find it seemed that someone had been in her house. I guess maybe if things were moved around, or you, you know, you just, you yeah, know where you, you had you certain feel things. it. Yeah. However, there was never a sign of a break in. But he had a key, right? Right. So there wouldn't be a sign of a break in if he was there. Duh. So Jennifer began keeping a gun by her bed, and not long before her death, she changed the locks on her house. So. So did she, she knew there was a key, or she, I mean, he had a key? Yeah, she knew he had a key, and it was supposed to be to help. With their daughter's medical stuff. Oh, so stuff. he, so she's assuming he was going when, when no one was there. I gotcha, I gotcha, gotcha. Right, right. So there was testimony presented at trial that David told Kenneth he wanted to marry Shirley, who was his current girlfriend, 
but he didn't know how he was going to support Shirley and her four children. So he had been separated for a couple months? I guess. And he's already got a new girlfriend who wanna marry her? Mm-hmm. And support her four children? Okay. And in this conversation, the um, David mentioned that the B word, um, Jennifer, we try not to curse, so I'm just gonna yeah. not say it. So. But y'all know what I'm saying. Um, he, David said that the B word, Jennifer, was taking him back to court and, quote, them two Bs was always causing him trouble, end quote. Kenneth testified that he assumed David meant money troubles, you know, they were, that when he said that they were always causing him trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and by those two Bs, I'm assuming he meant Michelle and Jennifer, you know, his two exes, because okay. they were the ones yeah, who yeah. had him on child support, you know. But, I mean, you have kids you have to support them right I mean if I mean I don't know anyway but according to Kenneth David did have a key to Jennifer's house and he went over there one night to kill her but he didn't because his little girl was there where else would she be David if she's not with you right right she can't be with her mom God. Kenneth testified that he was so used to hearing this kind of thing that he, quote, let it go through one ear and out the other. The quote. boy who cried wolf, basically. Yeah, like David was always saying, like, oh, I'm, so, I'm going to kill that bee, and then right. it never happened. Right. and then Which, you know, honestly, I joke and I say that stuff when people, I'm like, I tell my husband all the time, I joke, I'm like, ugh, I'm going to kill you. And I need to stop saying that because, uh, yeah. yeah, that's. I threaten my little brother that if he drinks and drives, I'm going to slaughter him. <laughs> and then I'm going to feature him. On our episode. Yeah, and then I'm going to look cute in my mugshot. So, now I want to talk about events leading up to and events on the day slash evening of the murders. And as I previously stated, Kenneth testified that about a month or two prior to the murders, he was depressed and had thoughts of wanting to kill himself. And Kenneth often talked about these thoughts and feelings with David Leger. I mean, generally you're going to talk to your friends about it. You know, but in that situation, if you're honestly feeling that you legitimately might be suicidal, you should probably talk to a professional, not just your friend. And I you wonder, know, like, right? I'm totally assuming here, but, like, how they probably, you know, hanging around the fire, drinking a couple beers, talking about murdering somebody or themselves. Like, right. yeah, you know. And so David would usually just comfort Kenneth and discourage him from killing himself. That is, until three days before the murder took place. So the Sunday before the murders, the murder took place on a Wednesday. So the Sunday before the murders, Kenneth went to a store to buy some beer. Oh, there it is. And he saw David walking out of the, while he was walking out of the store. And Kenneth told David that he wanted to use David's gun to kill himself. According to Kenneth's testimony, David told him, quote, you ain't going to use my gun unless you take them out. You know, he said, you got to take Brandy, Jennifer, and Michelle out, end quote. Hmm. Who were the eventual three victims. So Kenneth was the suicidal one, and he saw David leaving the store. Mm-hmm. In passing, he told David. I still want, because like they had previously talked about how he, he was suicidal. He wanted he to use David, his gun. Yes. And David's defense was like, hold up. You can't use my gun unless you take those three out. Hmm. Jesus. Kenneth later testified that David told him he couldn't use his gun, quote, unless I took out Brandy, Jennifer, and Michelle because they're the ones making me want to kill myself, end quote. 
Doesn't sound like a very good solution. No. No, not at all. Like I said, he probably should have talked to somebody professional. Right. Um, Kenneth said that he thought David was just messing around, but later in the conversation, David told Kenneth if he still wanted to kill himself, he could come by his house on Wednesday night, which would end up being the day of the murders, or the night of the murders, and that, quote, he wasn't worried about the gun because it was in Carlton Cooley's name, and he would just tell the cops I stole it, end quote. And Carlton Cooley was an old friend that David had worked with for, like, five or six years. So basically, David's telling Kenneth, like, yeah, you can use my gun because... I'm just going to tell him you stole it. So it's legitimate plotting at this point? Yes. Yes. Moving on. Right. And according to Kenneth's testimony, before he was arrested, he was living with his sister in Oakdale in Allen Parish, Louisiana, for around two or three weeks, I guess. Oakdale isn't in Allen Parish and not in Evangeline. I don't know. In Kiosha's, um episode, her, her town was in two parishes. Hmm. Maybe that kind of situation. But... So, Oakdale's about 17 miles or, like, 22 minutes from Evangelion Parish. So, I mean, it's still kind of close, but um, two days prior to the murders, Kenneth had arranged with Leger's brother, so, like, David Leger's brother, to borrow his pressure sprayer to wash his sister's house. And I had to look up what this was because I thought, like, a pressure washer, but no, it's one of those, like, um, you know those bottles that you can kind of put, like, Roundup in? Oh, they call that a Hudson sprayer. I think that's what it's called. But it's not the one that you hook to, like, a um, vehicle. But you can also put, like, bleach and water in it, you know, and you, you pump, pump it. it. That's yeah, a Hudson's you, pressure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it said pressure. I hope that's right. Look at me just speaking like I know what I'm talking about. But, you know, you pump it and spray. So he wanted to borrow it to wash his sister's house. So on the morning of the murders, Kenneth called David's sister-in-law. Let's just call her Elizabeth. Um, I changed her name to okay. protect her just because... Oh, yeah, it is a Hudson sprayer. Oh, okay. I'm good. (laughs) And Kenneth asked if he could come pick up the pressure sprayer, and Elizabeth spoke to Kenneth when he arrived to get the sprayer, and, you know, she testified that Kenneth arrived between 11 a.m. and noon, and at that time, he appeared to be completely sober. Was that a common concern? Yeah, I think he had started started drinking a lot in the time since they, him and his wife separated. But once he picked up the sprayer, Kenneth returned to his sister's house and he started drinking beer that he had bought earlier that day. And according to Kenneth's testimony, he had an appointment at a lawyer's office for 2 p.m. to pick up a settlement check. Mm -hmm. And once he picked up the check, he left and went to speak to Harold Darbun. I probably said that wrong, but um, at a finance company where he had previously taken out a loan. He was going to use that check to pay off the loan and um, Kenneth had promised Mr. Darwin that he'd you know repay the loan with the settlement money and he planned to also plan to pay off some bills with the settlement he planned to pay off the loan pay off some outstanding bills that he had and then the rest was supposed to be split between Kenneth and Brandy okay like equally after he took care of those things what okay so that's not 50 50 but okay <laughs> so after speaking to Mr. Darwin, Kenneth went back to his sister's house to pick up the unpaid bills. Um, I guess to bring them back and say, hey, this is the amount that I need mm-hmm. for these bills. So while Kenneth was at his sister's house picking up the bills, Mr. Darwin took out his portion to repay the loan and split the remaining money equally and gave Brandy her portion, which left Kenneth's bills unpaid. 
Before Kenneth returned to the finance company, he had finished all the beer he bought earlier in the day. So on the way back, he stopped for more beer and drank half of one. And I think he was buying the 40s. Okay. So that's a lot of beer to drink on the way. And Kenneth actually ran into Brandy as she was leaving the finance company. So she went and got her money quick. Yes. And according to Kenneth, Brandy, quote, had a wad of money and she kind of like shook it at me like that and then she called me a mf'er and she said now i can take the kids to alabama end quote i don't give a hoot right it, you right. give you a right to kill that lady. no no and like i think that's what he was that she provoked i don't care what she did to you that you don't you still don't kill anybody jeez so, now, and like I said, this is according to Kenneth, so take it with a grain of salt. I don't think anybody, right. nobody else witnessed this, so that's what he's saying right. that she said. So, like, I mean, maybe he's trying to make himself look better, but it doesn't matter. You still you shouldn't still kill anybody. Kill yeah. So, I, like I said, I don't know if that's really happened, but Kenneth further testified that he, quote, wanted to go kill myself even more because I knew if I'd kill myself, that'd be the ultimate way of hurting her heart, end quote. So, Harold Darbin confirmed that Kenneth had the intention to pay bills out of his settlement proceeds, and he continued that Kenneth told him that Brandy was on dope. Okay. Air quotes. And she and a few of her friends were looking forward to her half of the money so they could buy more drugs. Again, this is according to Kenneth, so do with that what you will. And Kenneth told Darbin that he didn't want Brandy to have any of the money because he feared she was planning to leave with his kids. Darwin testified that he witnessed Kenneth stomp out of the building saying that they, quote, did him wrong, end quote. Why don't you pout about it? Well, he's lucky that they were letting him pay the loan first instead of, and then splitting it, instead, instead of, of splitting it first. Yeah, that's so, what I said. It doesn't seem like it's 50-15. That's his, quote, unquote, estranged wife. She's technically entitled to 50% of the... Comp- Louisiana is a community property state. Yeah. So Elizabeth, David Leger's sister-in-law, testified that she saw Kenneth pull into her next-door neighbor's driveway around 4 o'clock p.m. And he, quote, went around, made a U-turn into David's driveway and came out, end quote. So I'm assuming David and his brother and his, you know, his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, all lived on the same street Mm -hmm. if she was able to see Kenneth pulling into David's. Um, She told the court that, to her knowledge, David was not home at that time or at that on that day and she continued that when Kenneth pulled into the driveway she was on the phone with Kenneth's sister and Kenneth's sister asked Elizabeth if he got if her brother got out at David's house so she went on the back porch to check but she didn't see his truck and by the time she got back to the front door Kenneth was already gone and she testified that he was only in the two driveways long enough to like pull in and pull out and he never like she never saw him stop Mm -hmm. so I guess he didn't stop because David wasn't home maybe he was just trying to go see if he was home David Lachey's aunt testified that she saw Kenneth's truck at David's house around 3 o'clock p.m. and that the truck stayed at David's house for two or three minutes and she testified that she thinks he killed quote unquote like you know Mm -hmm. air quotes killed the truck or turned the engine off but she wasn't positive so Once Kenneth left the loan company, he headed to visit his sister in Pine Prairie. Um, And as Kenneth was passing a friend's store, this friend being Chad Gojo is his name, 
Um, he stopped when he saw Chad and another one of their friends, Tank, standing outside. So Tank's birth name is Jerry Gibbons. And Chad testified that this was around 4 o'clock p.m. when he stopped to talk to them. And Kenneth agreed in his testimony that, you know, he saw them at that time and stopped to talk to them. So Chad testified that Kenneth was very upset, crying, pissed off, and hysterical, you know, when he got there to talk to them due to the fact that he couldn't see his kids and because of what was going on with his wife, Mm -hmm. which I feel like that would upset most people. Yeah. Chad testified that Kenneth asked if he could borrow Chad's gun, and Chad initially agreed, but he later changed his mind and refused to let Kenneth borrow the gun, which I guess after spending some time with him and seeing him, like, his of state shape. of mind, yeah. you know, he said no. So after refusing to loan Kenneth his gun, Chad drove Kenneth and Tank around in his truck while they drank. Oh, yeah. That's a common thing to do in Louisiana, though, I feel like. Or most small towns, maybe. Maybe not just Louisiana, but... Chad testified that he did drugs that day, but he didn't witness Kenneth use drugs while he was with him. Wait, so Chad did the drugs? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And according to Chad, Kenneth drank beer while they drove around, and he cried, like, off and on. Which Yeah, he should have definitely seen some real help. Yeah. And Kenneth told Chad he wanted to kill, quote, his wife, his wife's two girlfriends... Her parents, her two brothers, the whole family, anybody that was in contact with her, end quote. Whoa, that's extreme. Right. And Chad testified that Kenneth mentioned Michelle by name, but he didn't specifically mention Jennifer by name. But Chad later stated that Jennifer's name could have been mentioned. I guess, like, he couldn't really remember. Right. But he specifically remembered that he mentioned Michelle. Michelle. Right. And chad told the court that he had heard kenneth talk about wanting to kill his wife many times before but he never he never took him seriously (sighs) y'all got to pay more attention to y'all friends right so eventually chad and kenneth dropped tank back off at the store got more beer and kept riding around in chad's vehicle they attended a fish fry and then rode around some more and at some point i think they went to it's c-h-i-c-o-t state park um, I don't know how to say that. I can't say it. So y'all are gonna y'all look at you looking at me like I'm trying to I'm gonna tell know. you if you right. <laughs> I'm not. I don't know how to say it. Anyway, if y'all know how to say it, let me know because I know I just butchered that and I'm so sorry. Wait. Chico. Chico. Oh, so Chico. Apparently, thank you, Google. <laughs> so between nine and nine fifteen p.m., Chad and Kenneth returned to Chad's store and the two split up briefly, but. About 10 to 15 minutes later, Kenneth met Chad at the car wash, and then Kenneth followed Chad to his house, where Kenneth was visibly upset again. Kenneth was at Chad's house for about 15 to 20 minutes and asked Chad to borrow his gun again. And again, Chad was like, no. Good boy, Chad. Right. So Kenneth left, and Chad testified that he was almost positive that Kenneth did not have a gun in his truck when he left his house, which was between 9.20 and 9.35 Because if he did, he wouldn't be asking. Right. And Chad later testified that Kenneth left, quote, for at least 9.25 p.m., end quote. And it would usually take about 25 minutes to drive to David's house from Chad's house. An investigator uh, with the DA's office later testified that he drove that route himself, and it was 11.8 miles, and it took him 22 minutes. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. 
Chad testified that at some point during their time together that day, Kenneth told him that David was on his way home and he that David was going to give Kenneth a gun. So while on the stand, Chad was asked what Kenneth planned on doing with the gun he planned to get from David. And Chad said, quote, kill his, kill two girls, kill the girls and his family, end quote. And I want to say, I don't know if I have it written in here, but I want to say that Chad said that there wasn't a gun in Kenneth's truck because Chad helped Kenneth, like, search for his wallet in the truck at oh, some okay. point. So he, he would have yeah. seen the gun. Um, so Kenneth testified that he remembered going to David's house after he left Chad's and estimated that was between 9.30 and 10 p.m. And Kenneth testified that when he pulled up, David and his wife Shirley were sitting on the front steps. So I guess they had gotten married. Because mm-hmm. earlier he said right. he, he was, wanted to yeah. marry him, but he couldn't. Yeah. But, so I guess at some point they got married. They were sitting on the front porch steps, but Kenneth didn't see anybody else. And as Kenneth walked up, um, Shirley went inside. And Kenneth told David that his, quote, heart couldn't take it no more. I was ready to kill myself, end quote. And according so let's drink beer and make it worse, but go on. <laughs> and according to Kenneth's testimony, David went inside briefly and came back alone with his shotgun and an ammunition belt with shells in it. So, okay, so Kenneth never had a gun. No. David he, did. Yeah, he got, David. like Kenneth didn't own a gun. Right. That's so he had to borrow one or get so, one from somebody. So he got it he, from David. I feel like he had, that should have been his go-to, like if they were in cahoots about this Thing the whole time, but I guess maybe he wanted a handgun and David didn't have a handgun. Maybe. I don't know. So Kenneth, shotgun is uh, yeah. pretty. Uh, so Kenneth testified as follows about kind of the conversation. So I I normally don't like to do this, but I thought it was really important. So I'll be Kenneth, and you can be the prosecutor for sure. So Kenneth started. Uh, he told me I had to take them out. That's the first words he said to you. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And uh, it's he had told me I had to take them out, and I think he had handed me the gun at that point or something. That's when he had pulled my forehead down, well, to his, and he told me that he loved me, and I told him that I loved him. You know, I was crying already, and he started crying. And then uh, let me see what else he said. Did you say anything to him? Uh, when he said you got to take them out, did you say who or what or... He had, he had made me swear on his life and... Tell me. Tell me what he said. Like, after he handed... I don't remember if he handed the gun before he said that or... But he had told me after he told me to take them out, he had told me, he said, you swear on my life, you know? Like, he was... He was just... I remember him giving this deep, deep look, you know? Like, staring. I mean, staring me down hard. And I swore on his life. Then he told me to swear on my kid's life, so I swore on my kid's life. What did you say? Nothing. Yes. I just said yes. You didn't say, I swear on my kid's life? You just said yes? I'm, I think I said, I I think I just said yes. Okay. What else did y'all say between the two of y'all? Uh, I want to say we talked about something else, but it's, it's not clear. And, uh, I think about like just before I left or something, I, I remember saying I can't do it or I couldn't do it, but I'm not clear exactly when I said that or where. And, uh, like, going back to my truck, it's just, like, blank again. I don't even remember leaving his house. What did you do at that? So, at that point, you have the gun and the strap? Yes, ma'am. 
Um, I'm pretty sure I did. You know, the last I remember it was him handing it to me. When he said you got to take them out, did you know what he was talking about? Yes, ma'am, from the conversation we had had that Sunday. What did you interpret that to mean? I to kill them. Kill who? Brandy, Jennifer, and Michelle. And just want to say all the stammering. I will never look at you in the forehead and say, "I love you." Or put your forehead together. Yeah, no. No. I. Uh. Uh. I don't. I don't know what to. That was and all the stammering and the ums and uh, that was legitimately what he said. Yeah. I was uncomfortable reading some of that. Yeah, it's not normal. Right. So. I just thought that was kind of important to have that, what Kenneth remembered of that conversation. And according to Elizabeth's testimony during David's trial, which is David's sister-in-law that I've changed her real name, um, she talked to Jennifer and Brandy daily, and she spoke to Michelle, quote, off and on, end quote. So she was friends with these ladies, too. So she was number, like, Like the four four of them were were in their, like, group. Yeah. Yeah. And according to Elizabeth, she spoke to Jennifer around 9.15 or 9.20 p.m. on the night of the murders for, quote, maybe 10 minutes, end quote. And she further testified that she talked to Brandy around 9.30 or 9.35 p.m. on the phone. So all of this is the night of the murder. So she talked to every single one of them, or just two? Jennifer and then Brandy, the night of Two of, of them. Mm-hmm. Two of the three. Then, then like That were in separate places. So, right. like, Michelle and Brandy are in the same place, right. and Jennifer is at her home. And so this was maybe in, like, a few hours before it happened? Not even. Yeah. So while on the phone with Brandy, Elizabeth told her she thought she heard Kenneth's truck passing her house, which she recognized by its, like, distinctive sound. I guess it might have been one of those loud trucks. Like exhaust or something. Right. But when she looked outside, she could hear the truck driving down the street, but the lights weren't on. And Elizabeth said she heard the truck between 9.30 and 9.40 p.m., and then she continued her conversation with Brandy on the phone. She has a really good recount of, like, times inside. Yeah. And, I well, I guess... What I'm about to tell you, I guess that's why she remembered. Elizabeth continued that she was on the phone with Brandy when Kenneth arrived at Brandy's house. Oh, And wow. she heard him enter the home and heard Brandy say, quote, call, end quote. And then she heard Kenneth say, quote, you think you can get away with, end quote, before the line went dead. That's so heartbreaking. I know. So, Kenneth testified that he remembered seeing his wife's dead body and hearing his children cry. They were home. I hadn't said that yet, yes. The kids were there. And I'm pretty sure Jennifer's daughter was also there. Oh, my gosh. And I'm assuming Michelle's son was there, too, because she was living with Brandy. Yeah. So, there's four kids that you witnessed. witnessed you murder their mothers. And mm-hmm. then, well, technically five. Four kids in the one house and then one where Jennifer. Oh, right, right, right. The girl. Right. So I think I think Brandy and Kenneth had two girls and one boy. So I just and Kenneth said that he didn't remember actually shooting Brandy, but he did recall his attempts to resuscitate her were unsuccessful. So he was immediately regretful? I, I guess maybe and that's what he says, but I mean if you shoot someone with a shotgun, the chances of you resuscitating them are pretty slim, mm-hmm. I would think. But, right. but like you said, maybe he was immediately regretful and was like, uh, yeah, let me see if I can help her. But So Kenneth continued that he put his son in his truck 
and he stopped and confessed to his dad, who lived on the same property, like I said before, and he told his daughters that he loved them. Kenneth also said that he did not recall going to Jennifer Leger's house that night. So I don't have specifics of, like... The second incident. Or the scenes, really. Um, I just kind of know what was said at the trial, because there weren't many articles on So it. he killed Brandy. And Michelle at and the Michelle. same house. Took his son... Or maybe he went to Jennifer's house first. I'm not sure. Because he had his son with him. And he said that he thinks he went to, he thinks that he went to his sister's house after he left Brandy's, but he didn't have a clear recollection of any conversations that took place while he was there. And Kenneth's sister testified that Kenneth showed up at her house around 10 p.m. on the night of the murders with his son. So, yeah, if, if he took his son with him and he went to his sister's, I'm assuming he might have went to Jennifer's first. That's weird. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know, though. Because, like I said, I don't... He says he doesn't remember going there. Mm-hmm. But it was the same gun. It it's was, it's weird how he would go there first, too. Yeah. Like, I feel like I don't he, know that. I know, but sure, if, like, but, if... I mean, yeah. But it, But he had his son with him. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, when he went to his sister's... And if you think about it at the time, she got... They say he got there about 940. Mm-hmm. Killed the two. Tried to resuscitate and was at his sister's by 10. I think it was all very close, but I don't know. So maybe, yeah, maybe he did have to have gone to Jennifer's Which first. is strange in itself because I feel like he'd be more... Inclined to kill his his own wife Yes, for, first. like that was his main know. priority. But as, as far as I know, Kenneth, like he showed up at his sister's house with his son, and I don't think he left. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't... I was, so I would assume... So he left the two daughters there? Maybe with his dad. He only took his son. Because, like, it's on his dad's property. He mm-hmm. told his dad what happened. So, according to Kenneth's sister, Kenneth confessed to her that he killed Brandy, Jennifer, and Michelle because, quote, I had to, end quote. So, he told his sister he killed all three. So, he's just confessing up right. to everybody. And, uh, so, Kenneth's sister's partner of 15 years was also there at the time and testified that Kenneth told him, quote, he took care of uh, David's problems, end quote. And his own. Right. And he also testified that he saw the gun on the seat of Kenneth's truck that night. And Kenneth's sister's partner first testified that Kenneth told him he got the gun from David. But upon cross-examination, he testified that Kenneth first said he took the gun from David. Then he later said he stole it. So kind of wishy-washy. Yeah, back and forth. And in his original statements to the detective three days after the murders, he said that Kenneth told him he broke into David Leger's house and took the gun. So, back and forth. We um, know what happened. So, according to Kenneth's dad, who is also Kenneth Sr., so I'll call him Mr. Vickers. Mm-hmm. So, if I say Kenneth, I'm talking about Junior. Junior. And if I say Mr. Vickers, I'm talking about the dad. Um, so, almost immediately after his son left his house, so close he could still hear his son's truck pulling off, in fact... David Leger pulled into Mr. Vickers' driveway and got out of his vehicle and started having a conversation with him. And the cops hadn't even been called. Nobody knew. And according to Mr. Vickers, the first thing David Leger asked him was, what's wrong with your son? And Mr. Vickers told him, I don't know David. I don't know more than what the girls just told me. So he his did granddaughter. So he did have the girls. Yeah. And... Mr. Vickers told David the girl told him that their daddy had shot and killed their mama and Aunt Michelle. 
To which David replied, oh, goddamn, I got to get out of here. And then Leger promptly left. But the fact that he showed up right after Kenneth left. Yeah. And no one knew anything. Like, I don't even think they had called the cops yet. And Mr. Vickers' brother, Robert Cecil Vickers, testified that he and his wife Paula live on the property next to Mm -hmm. Mr. Vickers' trailer. So I think it's like a big family. It's like a Vickers compound. They were standing at their fence close to Mr. Vickers' porch when David drove up. Mm-hmm. And Robert Vickers confirmed the statements made by Dave Leger, according to Mr. Vickers. And he added that he overheard Leger say, quote, it's getting deep, end quote, before leaving. So David Leger says he testified that he learned from his sister-in-law, Elizabeth, just a reminder, mm-hmm. changed her name. but So he says he learned from her that his gun was used in the murders. And Leger told the court that when he learned this, when he learned that his gun was missing, he had his sister call Helen Gotro, who is the wife of Frank Gotro, who's mm-hmm. a sergeant with the Evangeline Parish Sheriff's Office. And Sergeant Gotro testified that many people in the community call him for, quote, law-related problems 90% of the time, end quote. So Helen Gotro called and reported the gun missing around 10.05 p.m. Conveniently. Right, and Elizabeth testified that she found out from Kenneth's sister, Brenda West, that David's gun was the murder weapon around because 10.15 he told, or Because 10.30. Kenneth told her. Right. But, well, his, yeah, because Kenneth, Kenneth told his sister, uh-huh. yeah. So, Elizabeth testified that she found out that David's gun was the murder weapon around 10.15 or 10.30 p.m., the night of the murders. But the gun was reported missing at 10.05 p.m. Mm-hmm. And David testified that he reported it missing because he found out that it was used in the murder. So it was reported missing before. and But he also said that Elizabeth is the one who told him that it was used in the murder. Yeah. But Elizabeth is didn't. saying she didn't find out until after. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like after yeah, David had talked and got somebody. Yeah. It's just confusing. A lot of he said, she said. Yeah, and I almost left it out, but I wanted to kind of point out that, I mean, if you're going to trust what Elizabeth is saying, her timeline, then David is lying because he couldn't have found out from Elizabeth because Elizabeth didn't find out that his gun was used until after. So basically, if you're going to accept Elizabeth's timeline, then David was lying because he couldn't have found out from her because she didn't find out until after the gun was reported missing. So, I don't know. Elizabeth testified that David called her after she spoke to Brenda and she asked him why he sold Kenneth a gun. And, of course, David denied right. that he sold Kenneth a gun and checked his house to see if his gun was missing. And, spoiler alert, we know that it was because he gave it to him. But Elizabeth testified that she told David he needed to report the gun as stolen and according to Elizabeth, this conversation took place between 10.30 and 10.45 p.m. But we know that the gun was already reported stolen at 10.05 p.m. So, I don't know. Just something doesn't add up here. Right. It's confusing. Like right. I'm, it's, it, I'm, it's, My mind is spinning. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. but <laughs> So, Kenneth's sister, Brenda West, testified that she found out from David Leger that her brother had used David's gun. And according to Wes, David Leger was the first person to call her home the night of the murders after Kenneth arrived. And Wes testified that David called her to ask her 
why Kenneth had killed, quote, those women, end quote, with his gun. And who's West again? Kenneth's sister. Kenneth's sister, right. And I'm, like, getting so confused. Yeah. This is where it gets fishy again. According to Kenneth's sister's testimony, this call took place before she even called 911, which was about 10.05 p.m. And once she called 911, Kenneth waited there calmly for authorities to arrive, and he was taken into custody without incident. So so I guess he had to have gone to Jennifer's first. I, I don't so know. So 10.05, gun reported stolen. And the 911 call. To who? Mm-hmm. To report the murders. Gun reported and the murders yes. reported. Yeah, by different people. But uh, Who reported the murders? Uh... The sister, the dad? No, Gotro. I think it was like his aunt. I think it was Leger's aunt. Yeah, Helen Gotro. I think it was his aunt. And who reported the gun? David. No, Helen Gotro. I'm sorry. Helen Gotro reported the gun. gun. And Brenda West, who is Kenneth's sister, sister, reported the murders. Okay. She called 911. And then when did Elizabeth find out? What time? I think 10, 15... When did she find out that the gun was used? Mm-hmm. 1040, 1035. No. I'm so... Hang on, I'm, I'm trying to find my... I'm, place. like, so confused. Okay, so Brenda West called... Okay, so Kenneth's sister, Brenda, mm-hmm. called Elizabeth between 1015 and 1030 to tell her that David's gun was used. Okay, so Brenda to Elizabeth. Yeah. Amanda's taking notes. I am. I'm so confused. Okay. And then after that, um, Elizabeth called David between 1030 and 1045. Elizabeth to, to David. Yeah, to tell him that, check if your gun's missing. And it was what time was that? Between 1030 and 1045. And what did he say? That his gun was missing, and she was like, you need to report it missing. But he had already or done report that. report it stolen, but he had already done that at 1005. And he had already, he called... Helen. Kenneth's sister. No, yeah, Helen to report it missing. Yeah. But he also called Kenneth's sister's house before she even made the 911 call, which was at 10.05. So he knew. Yeah, I mean, he, how would I mean, he know? But he, so, so, in, so David saying Kenneth stole it. Mm-hmm. But he, but Kenneth. He knew he had it. He knew he had it because he's showing up at Kenneth's dad's house. He's, he's calling everybody, you know. How so they're he, playing against each other at this point. Right. Even right. though they're homies. So right. Kenneth is saying David gave it to him, mm-hmm. and David is saying Kenneth, Kenneth stole, stole it. it. Right. But Kenneth also said that David previously told him, yeah, you can take it because I'll long as you, it is stolen. As, as yeah. long as you take them out, too. Yep. Right. So it's just, it's very confusing. So David's a liar? Yeah, I feel like I need a string board yes. for this. Uh, pie graphs and right. stuff. <laughs> so... L.C. Desitel, who was the chief of police in Pine Prairie, testified that on the night of the murders between 10 and 10.10 p.m., he received a phone call from someone who addressed him by his nickname, Puna. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And according to Chief Desitel, the caller never identified himself, but he believed that it was David Leger, who he had known for a long time. And Chief Desitel did testify that although he believed the caller was David, he wasn't positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't really. But he continued that he'd known David for such a long time, and he's familiar with his voice, and David always called him Puna, like mm-hmm. his nickname. So the caller told Chief Desitel, quote, Kenneth had killed the three girls, and he was going to Oakdale to his sister's house with his son, end quote. 
So only somebody who knew. How did he know? Like because he went to to the dad's, dad's house, and I guess the dad told him where okay. he was going. Okay. This is where it gets crazy. According to Chief Desitel's testimony, he called the Evangeline Parish Sheriff's Office approximately a minute after this call to report what he was told by this mystery caller. And he was informed that at that point, only two murders had been reported. So I guess maybe in the 911 call, she only reported the two at the same house. Mm-hmm. But there was also Jennifer. So Evangeline Parish Sheriff's, Depu- Sheriff's Department deputies involved in the investigation of the murders didn't learn of the third victim until about 11.45 oh, p.m. Wow. when they arrived at Kenneth's sister's Brenda's house. So maybe Brenda, you know, just in the night, I don't, I couldn't find the 911 call, but maybe she just told him, like, yeah, he definitely, like, killed okay. these two, but he also, maybe I guess they didn't tell him about. So at 11.45, they learned of Jennifer's murder. Because mm-hmm, that's when they got there, to Brenda's house. So, I don't know. Anthony Paul Fontenot who was a longtime friend of Kenneth and David, testified that he saw David a week after the murders, and he asked if David had really given Kenneth the gun. And according to Fontenot, David gave Kenneth the gun the night of the murders. Which is what Kenneth said. Yeah, like, yeah, that's what David told Fontenot. And Fontenot asked David, you know, why'd you give him the gun? And David told him that Kenneth just asked if he had a gun and that he could use, but he didn't know what he wanted to do with it. And Fontenot continued that, like, six to eight months later, David told him he gave Kenneth the ammunition belt when he asked for shells. So I guess that's kind of corroborating Kenneth's testimony. testimony, And Kenneth testified that David hated Brandy, Jennifer, Michelle, and Elizabeth, his own sister-in-law, because... And he said he hated them for a long time, and he often talked about killing them, wanting to kill them. And Kenneth continued that David blamed the women for his trouble with other women, saying, quote, they always up in his business, end quote. Uh, Which is, that's a a lot of people, I'm like that. I'm in everybody's business. (laughs) Um, And according to Kenneth, David blamed Elizabeth and Brandy for his breakup with Michelle. And so his own sister-in-law and Kenneth's wife, and he blamed Jennifer and Michelle for his lack of money. I guess child support. So that's why he hated all four of them. That was his reason. Yes. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he wanted to include Elizabeth, but didn't. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Just speculation. I don't know. But so, I'm a, like I said, I'm assuming he blamed Jennifer and Michelle for his lack of money because of the child support. Mm-hmm. And Kenneth testified that like a month or two before the murders, David attempted to get custody of his son with Michelle to avoid paying child support, but he wasn't successful. Right. And when his plan backfired, Kenneth overheard David say, quote, I'd like to kill that B word. And oh my gosh, y'all right. pick who y'all have kids with. Right. And. At trial, David disagreed with the argument that the death of the mothers of his two children would change the child support obligation, quote, insults the intelligence, end quote, because the children are still alive. Like, that seems crazy to me. Like, of course he would benefit from not having to pay child support. Like, yeah, he would have to support them himself, but he'd have full custody if the mothers were deceased. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, unless he had something to do with it. And... Don't forget that Kenneth testified that David expressed 
some concern about his inability to support Shirley and her four, and her kids. four kids due to the amount of child support that he was paying. So David's children did stay with him until he was, his son and his daughter from Michelle and mm-hmm. Jennifer did stay with him until he was arrested. Um, and upon his arrest, his daughter went to live with her maternal grandparents and his son went to live with his maternal grandmother. So um, a lot of what I've read came from the trial documents. But So now I want to talk about the trial and plea bargain because there was a plea bargain. <sighs> I hate that. On March 7, 2003, Kenneth Vickers Jr. pled guilty to three counts of manslaughter for the murders of Brandy Vickers, Jennifer Leger, and Michelle Oakland and he was sentenced to 120 years in prison. So that's a long, I guess. And that's a plea bargain. That's a plea bargain, right. So, and then in October of 2003, October 14th, David Leger was indicted by a grand jury for being a principal in the first degree murders of Brandy, Jennifer, and Michelle. In addition, Leger was indicted on three counts of solicitation for murder and three counts of criminal conspiracy for his alleged involvement in the murders. And before the trial began, the prosecution prosecution reduced Leger's charges to conspiracy to commit second-degree murder. And I thought that was odd, so I looked up, like, the various sentences for the charges, and according to Louisiana law, revised statute 1428.1, the sentence for solicitation for murder is imprisonment at hard labor for not less than five years, but no more than 20 years. And according to Louisiana Revised Statute 1426, whoever is a party to a criminal conspiracy to commit a crime punishable by death or life imprisonment shall be imprisoned at hard labor for not more than 30 years. And according to Louisiana Revised Statute 1430.1, the sentence for second-degree murder is life imprisonment at hard labor without the possibility of parole, probation, or suspension of sentence. And basically, being charged principal to a crime carries the same penalty yep. as the actual crime. That's why so principal I, is, um, I guess, better or worse, depending on what, what right. um, standpoint you're looking at it from. But um, is accessory. Yeah. So the, a lot yeah. of people think they're kind of similar. Yeah. So I just wanted to look up the different sentences that he could have gotten. So basically, between five years and 20 years, um, 30 years, or... Um, life. So David Leger's trial began on March 1st, 2004, and a week later, on March 8th, 2004, he was found guilty by the jury on three counts of conspiracy to commit second-degree murder and was acquitted for the remaining. But on May 24th, 2004, he was sentenced to 12 years for each conviction to be served consecutively back-to-back for a total term of 36 years. So, of course, he filed an appeal. They all do. Uh, I say he, David Leger, filed an appeal. I know going with this. Yeah. And most, when you make a, when you take a plea deal, you can't appeal most times. So I don't think Kenneth Vickers can appeal ever. No. It, it's I think a that, lot of times I think that's like you're, you're forfeiting your right, right to appeal. So David Leger's defense filed a motion for appeal that was granted on June 4th, 2004, and they were seeking review of his conviction and sentences. But ultimately, in June 2005, his convictions and sentences were affirmed, and his sentence, as we previously discussed, was 12 years for each conviction to be served consecutively for a total of 36 years. 
And in the appeal decision, Judge Billy Howard Ezell wrote, quote, defendant conspired to kill three young mothers, two of whom were the mothers of his children, and the third, the mother of Kenneth's children. While defendant may not have pulled the trigger, his active participation was as heinous as the actions of Kenneth, who shot the victims with a shotgun while their children watched. The fact that defendant was not the shooter does not detract from the shocking nature of the crimes of which he was convicted, end quote. Booyah! Right. So, this last part, I don't. Hmm. Amanda's going to want to come across this table at me, but... So, as part of the Louisiana Justice Reinvestment Package, Louisiana began the release of about 2,021 inmates from jails and prisons across the state on November 1st, 2017. And according to the Louisiana Department of Corrections website, quote, the Louisiana Justice Reinvestment Package passed by the Louisiana legislature works to reduce prison populations in the state and invest in programs and policies proven to reduce recidivism or return to incarceration by supporting prisoners through these incentives. We are able to decrease recidivism and prevent crime, leading to safer prisons and communities, end quote. So for those who might not know, recidivism is the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend. Yep. And according to the Louisiana Justice Reinvestment Reforms Practitioner's Guide, the new laws were expected to save taxpayers an ex- estimated $262 million over the next 10 years. That's insane. So um, I think I was with the sheriff's office when they started that whole reform. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like John Legend was even here. He was testifying. I remember watching it. John Legend so was testifying like in favor. Of we this. had this really, really big case in St. John Parish, and this guy was pretty much trying to sell 200,000 pills of Xanax. Mm. And he, you know, he was like black market. Like it mm. was, and long story short, he pretty much was linked to like this like really, really smart guy who, I wish I knew his name, um, like in Italy or something, who mm. was like a, kind of like a big deal in the drug game. Anyways, like if you knew the chain of events that like connected, anyways, yeah. this guy ended up killing himself. But the guy who was arrested in St. John Parish, he like... I think he ended up getting eight years, and he served two. Because of this? Because it's nonviolent crime. That's what I was getting to. So one of the biggest changes from these laws is this. Inmates convicted of nonviolent crimes will only be required to serve one-third of their sentence instead of the previously required 50% of their sentences. One prisoner this law change benefited was David Leger. I'm sorry. I know he did actually pull the trigger, right? but the crime was still... Violent. Yeah, and I talked to my husband. I was telling him about the case, and I was like, this blows my mind. Like, I knew, and my husband was like, yeah, but he didn't pull the, you know, he, his intentions were violent, but he didn't actually commit you know, the drug, violence. Drug charges mm-hmm. are not violent. Right. Your, your victim for a drug charge is society. Right. But this, there was a victim. Right. So... According to the Ville Platte Gazette, David Leger was released on November 1st, 2017, after serving just 13 years of his 36-year sentence for conspiring with Kenneth Vickers Jr. to have his wife, Jennifer, or his ex-wife, Jennifer, and the mother of his child, Michelle, murdered, as well as Kenneth's wife. But had he served his full 36-year sentence, Leger's original release date would have been April 2nd, 2039. Wow. Yeah, but I read that even 
under the old laws, like 50%, he would have gotten out sometime in 2019 with good behavior. So he still would have gotten out. In tw- just two more years? Not even two years. I think it was like a year and a half. Like, because this was in November 2017, and I think in 20, it was like the beginning of 2019. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. This case is just upsetting and the fact that this guy is out like i said he might not have done it but, no, he, but he encouraged it. it yeah he oh. planted the seed really think about and, it and now as a result five kids Are don't they? have a mom mm-hmm. it's just so sad and my heart really does go out to the victims and their families and especially their kids mm-hmm. right. do so. we know how old their kids are now i don't I, it didn't say how old they were then so i'm not yeah. sure mm-hmm. yeah i just I, my heart breaks for them yeah, you so. know how I am about appeals and plea bargains. Right. So. But at least Kenneth Vickers will never get out, so that's. Yeah. So. Well, y'all, that's the case of the Evangeline Parish triple murders. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know, When an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomegirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions.